Today on Small Shop Fundraising, we're talking about showing gratitude and saying thank you to your donors. And not only how it supports your fundraising efforts, but how it can increase donations. We're talking with Stephen Shattuck today on Small Shop Fundraising. Hello and welcome to Small Shop Fundraising, a podcast dedicated to small to medium-sized nonprofits and the topics and issues facing them today. I'm your host, Liz Hack, and we are joined today with by Stephen Shattuck. He is the Chief Engagement Officer at Bloomering, and we're going to give him a, a moment to tell us what that is for folks who may not have heard of them. But first, I want to welcome and thank thank you so much for coming to Small Shop Fundraising today. Sure, Stephen. anytime. <laughs> really appreciate you coming on and talking to our audience about stewardship. We're going to talk yeah. a lot about stewardship today. And one thing I love about Stephen, just to tell the audience, is that <laughs> you are constantly testing the markets that you have an ability to to reach out to, to see what stewardship is doing for the nonprofit sector. Yeah. I distinctly remember a test maybe of your $5 donation mm. to 50 different nonprofits. I think you did that locally in Indianapolis. Is that right? Yeah, we did it in Indy and we, we also did a couple other cities. We would choose one random city a year. Uh, and yeah, I did do a little secret shop shopping experiment to uh, nonprofits in that city and just kind of record how they respond, if they respond at all, and, and how they steward me as a, as a new donor. Yeah. And so this is not your first rodeo when it comes to <laughs> looking at the stewardship data and how it impacts fundraising. That's the real important part for yeah. our small to medium-sized nonprofits. So before we get into all that, hey, what's Bloomerang? Well, Bloomerang's a, a donor management product. We're, we're a donor database product that uh, is used by mostly North American nonprofits. We've got a, a few thousand, um, several thousand customers actually. But but yeah, so we're a real good fit for kind of the small to medium sized shops, which is one of the reasons we're talking today. Yeah, um, but yeah, check us out online. We're pretty we're pretty uh, easy to find, and uh, if, if you're shopping for that, <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely if if I know of someone who is looking for a new database or the first one ever, I always ask them if they've heard of Bloomerang and for them to, to at least know about. So your role over at Bloomerang is Chief Engagement Officer. What does that mean? And how did you get to be the CEO? <laughs> well, I'm still trying to figure it out myself. It's, you know, we joke around the office that we have three CEOs. We have a real CEO, a real Chief Executive Officer. We have our our past CEO, Jay Love, who was one of our founders, and he has since retired. And then me, who basically just gets to goof off and, and, <laughs> and do fun things like this and do weird, you know, data experiments, like you said, and, and speak on webinars and share the data. So I, I feel like I kind of trick them into the best job in the world, which is to just, you know, share all this knowledge and, and, and do these fun little experiments and things. <laughs> I saw you at an AFP Bluegrass yeah. chapter event, and you were telling me you were headed off to, this was last year. Or yeah, last year. Yeah, you were headed off to a lot of different places. How has the pandemic impacted your travel schedule? Well, it's it's grounded it, which uh, my wife and kids aren't necessarily too upset about. But it, you know, it's I think it's opened up our opportunities where you know you go to a conference and you have all these choices and you kind of have to make hard decisions between a bunch of a bunch of sessions. Are all going to be really good, but you can only go to, to one. But mm -hmm. you know, there's been so many more webinars and virtual conferences that are really affordable and accessible to people, and I, I feel like 
you know, over the past 90 days, if there's any, you know, bright side to, to any of this, and I don't mean to cast it aside, but I, I think that there's been a lot more learning opportunities that, that maybe people weren't able to, you know, travel or, mm -hmm. you know, get away from the office to, to get to, which is good. Yeah, I always look for the lemonade myself when you're yeah. handed a bunch of lemons. <laughs> and absolutely, the accessibility for folks to take 15 minutes, 30 minutes, and hop onto a webinar or listen to a podcast, Small Shop Fundraising, mm -hmm. and really just glean one or two things, which is really sometimes all you get when you're in person as well. Glean one two one or two things from, from that webinar or podcast. It's made it much more accessible, much easier yeah. for even small to medium-sized nonprofits to grab hold of some really good knowledge from really smart people. So Absolutely. that is one thing that hopefully we can continue uh, yeah. as we move forward through this crisis. So let's talk about stewardship. You want to? Okay. Let's do it. My but favorite. <laughs> also, I want to make sure that our audience understands the role that stewardship has in fundraising. So I'd like to hear from your perspective and your experience and all the testing that you've done. What role does stewardship have in fundraising? Well, I think it's it's critical. You know, we're I'm kind of a, a donor retention geek. You know, we talk a lot about donor retention at Bloomerang and I do personally and we, we like to kind of signal boost other researchers like Adrian Sargent and the fundraising effectiveness project you know we're big supporters of who look at retention and all the studies and there's a mountain of research from different sources not just different researchers but different participating nonprofits you know spanning the decades that all basically conclude that the best way to retain a donor that you already have is to steward them. And, and this isn't to take away from donor acquisition or anything like that, which is still mm -hmm. really important. But I, I feel like kind of the, the real work of fundraising begins after the first gift is, is acquired. I've heard, I've heard the first gift described as simply table stakes, right? You got them in the door and that's great. And, and I, I worry sometimes that people maybe kind of brush off their hands and, and kick their feet up and say, well, we got a donor, we're done. But but to me, the, the real work of fundraising begins there because you want to get that second gift, you want to get the third gift, you want to get the 10th gift, you know, and on up through the relationship, whether it's a monthly gift or, um, you know, a mid-level to a major gift. And then finally, you know, a bequest, you want to have that whole lifetime of, of the relationship fulfilled rather than just someone giving one gift and maybe not having a real good experience and, and isn't really enticed to give again. And that can be very painful in terms of ROI because if your cost to acquire that new donor is higher than the actual gift they give and they don't give again, you know, yeah, you may have gotten $20 donation, but maybe it cost you, you know, $23 to acquire them. So to me, it's everything, the stewardship piece. And, and I, I know that there is a danger of going overboard. You know, there are a lot of really smart people talking about the dangers of donor worship and, and the kind of the implications that come there. And that's all very good. And we don't want to do that. But I think that, you know, every donor deserves to be thanked and deserves to be told, you know, the, the awesome things that their gift is going to make happen and then be kind of updated on those things. And, and the research shows that when you do that, when you do the thanking, the reporting, the storytelling, they're going to be more likely to give again. And that's what we all want. We want them to give again. I just want to say something that really sticks out to me that you just said. <laughs> Every donor deserves to be thanked. And, yeah. and sometimes the nonprofits want to put a prerequisite around that. Yep. 
you know, yeah, maybe the dollar amount or right. the channel sometimes. If I would, and I would push back on that, and and sometimes that may come from the board or from the leadership, or it, it may be a symptom of a really high gift volume. Mm-hmm. And and I sympathize with that. You know, if if you can't get to every single donor because you've got hundreds of gifts coming in, that's kind of a good problem to have. But I, I think the going back to ROI, it's a good use of time to maybe pick up the phone and call a new donor or write a handwritten note to a monthly donor, you know, a couple times a year, maybe once a year, and just out of the blue, hey, thanks for being a monthly donor. Those little things that may seem, you know, like they would be time consuming and and not worth it. Again, the research shows that they're really effective. And I think culturally within the organizations, they could be, you know, transformative for sure. All right. So let's talk about that data. You know, you've probably sat on a bunch of panels or (laughs) or listened to a bunch of webinars. How do I engage my donor in a pandemic, Stephen or Mm. Liz? What should I do as a new small to medium sized nonprofit? I can't have them to campus right now, maybe. I can't have an event. We're doing it virtually. You know, I usually go around to all my donors. So this pandemic has really thrown a wrench in how we start. And some people say, I don't really want to spend the time doing yeah. doing the, the notes. So what's the data? Can we talk about that? I know it's difficult sometimes to talk about data without a visual. I know <laughs> you've got some good visuals that I could put in our show notes. Yeah. But let's do our best to talk about what you've seen in your testing and how it impacts giving. Yeah, we looked at this. We looked at this amongst our customers. I, I, th- I think the, the, the first answer to your question is to keep to keep stewarding them, uh, you know, to kind of get over that defeatist attitude of the pandemic, people are stressed, maybe people are losing their jobs, they're losing their incomes, they're getting bombarded by all these things. I think there's a lot of a lot of ways you can kind of talk yourself out of, you know, connecting with donors mm-hmm. beyond just how we're going to do it. Just kind of the first thing is philosophically, should we do it? Right. You know, is this the right thing? And I was on a webinar real early on in March. You know, we're recording this kind of late spring, early summer, but when this was all going on, and this has been an ongoing thing that I've heard from folks saying, well, you know, we're not on the front lines, you know, we're not a food bank, we're not mm-hmm. a social service, you know, we're just a library, we're just a museum, we're just an environmental group, we, we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be talking now, because we don't want to take away from from the work that, you know, other organizations are doing. And I know that comes from a, a good place in their sure. heart. But my response has been for the last almost four months that no, you know, you're worthy you know, your your mission is just as valuable. You know, the people that are really into the work you do in January are still going to be into it in April and, and June and August, and they want you to be around when this is all over. So I, I think the first thing is to kind of get over that and say, you know what, we are worthy of fundraising. You know, we're worthy of doing stewardship because we want our cause, the, our services to be around when this when this all ends or when this, when this gets better. So you kind of have to decide, let's do it, right? And, and I know, again, that that sometimes comes down from the board, maybe, or the leadership saying, you know, we don't, let's, let's stay on the sidelines for now. But I would encourage people to get off the sidelines because we saw, we saw organizations among our community that don't fit that bill, you know, they're environmental or they're performing arts, just right. doing great. And, and I think the main reason is because they got over that fear and they yeah. were reaching out to their supporters and making that case for support. But Absolutely. but going back to your original question. If I could yeah. just add to that, I, I too have heard some of the same things and mm-hmm. You're right in that those nonprofits need to realize that the donors that support them feel that they are essential. Yes. And that what the essential thing that they bring to the community is joy. And we can't 
forget that. We can't forget yeah. that music and dance and culture are nature. Yeah. Nature are, are, are <laughs> essential in mental health. Or any of the other reasons that the donor has decided that you yeah. get my time, talent, treasure. What is essential there is joy. And yep. that's what donors see. And that's what nonprofits need to remember. And if you make the decision for the donor, right, that's, you know, that's not right. And that that you're definitely making sure they're not going to give because if you're, you know, if you kind of close the door on them, I totally agree with what you said. And that's been a big thing we've been trying to encourage people to do. And then once they've decided to do it, the question of how comes up and, mm-hmm. and everything mm-hmm. you said is true. The events are gone. The in-person visits are definitely, if not completely gone, are, are definitely disruptive. But we've seen a lot of creativity. And, and I think there's kind of this this pendulum swinging back towards the old, you know, analog, low-tech things like phone calls and handwritten notes and, you know, opening up Gmail or Outlook and just writing one email to one person rather than just, you know, relying on your big mass email provider to send an email blast to, you know, 20,000 people or however many's on your list, you know, being real personal. And then real creativity, things like like Zoom calls or, you know, Google Hangouts or, or FaceTimes where you're calling up maybe a major donor or a long-term volunteer and just having a little virtual coffee or maybe a small group setting on like a Zoom meeting where maybe you're you're having a chat or showing folks behind the scenes. You know, maybe if you're a museum or a theater and people can't come in and see you physically, maybe you can kind of peel back that curtain and take them on a video tour or, or something like that. We looked at our customers who logged those kinds of interactions uh, in their database amongst their constituents. And we compared them to organizations who who weren't logging those kind of interactions. And across the board, there was huge increases in revenue compared to the same time last year, which was kind of a normal, you know, late winter, early fall in terms of fundraising. I know there's hardly anything that seems been seemed normal over the past few years, but you know, it was it was clear. It was clear that the organizations who were proactively reaching out were, were performing better than than organizations who weren't. And so can we dig a little deeper into yeah. into that? What were those organizations doing to perform better? Go ahead. We looked at four categories. Phone calls, one to one emails. So literally, you know, Liz is writing an email to Steven and just Steven or vice versa. Mm -hmm. Text messages was a really interesting one where they were recording uh, text messages to donors, which again was kind of a one-to-one thing. And then the fourth was was personal interactions, even even though they weren't physically close. So they were doing things like Zoom calls and and FaceTimes and Hangouts and things like that. So kind of virtual face-to-face. Okay, I see. And amongst those four categories of interactions, it was around about a 20% increase over last year, over last spring, uh, among the organizations who did it. So not only did they kind of outperform the organizations who weren't doing those things, but they actually raised more money during COVID than they did the same time last year when we weren't dealing with all these things. So to me, it really points towards the, this idea that donors don't want to hear from us during a crisis. I, I think the opposite is true. I think, you know, me personally, I, you know, our family gives monthly gifts to organizations here in Indianapolis. And, and 
you know, maybe only one or two of them out of maybe a dozen, you know, reached out to us and updated us or maybe even showed some concern about us personally, you know, how are you doing during this crisis? And and I, I think that you know, it, it obviously paid dividends to organizations who did those kinds of things. Okay, so I want to ask a question about text messages. That is just a one-to-one text message. We're not talking yes. like a blast out through several phone numbers, correct? Correct. Okay. And the in-person or phone calls that we're talking about, do you know much more about those phone calls or in-person Zoom uh, virtual calls? What was the content? Because yeah. I could understand, you know, the, the first phone call. You know, thank yeah. you so much for your $10 donation. How yes. are you doing? Um, on and on. What does the second phone call sound like? Or do you know from your data? We don't have, you know, the actual recording of the phone sure, call sure, wasn't sure. entered in, so it's hard to say. But there are, there were a lot of sort of tags for the interaction, whether they were solicitation or stewardship or acknowledgement. So those were kind of across the board as well. But what we heard anecdotally from people was that a lot of it was geared towards that first gift, like you said, you know, so calling a donor after their first gift. Lots of research shows that's effective. But then later on, hey, we just wanted to give you an update on what's going on with us. You know, whether if they were an organization that maybe had to close or maybe had to change their procedures in terms of perhaps sanitation or things like that. A lot of it was updating the supporter on what's going on with the organization. We, I talked to an animal shelter and around Portland, Oregon, that did a really good job, and they were they believed proactively that they needed to do this to tell people, hey, this is what we're doing. This is how we're keeping the animals safe. This is how we're keeping the volunteers safe. A lot of it was just simply, you know, this is how we've been affected, and these are kind of the steps we're taking to protect everyone and make sure that we're still still able to do these things. And then if you looked at a higher kind of value donors, like maybe a monthly donor or a major gift donor, it was simply, hey, just calling to see how you're doing, how your family is doing. We're thinking about you. You know, you've been a longtime supporter. Just wanted to say thanks for that support and then just want to make sure you're okay. So a lot of it was just simply the organization checking in with the donor to make sure right. they're doing okay. Kind of apropos of, of nothing, just kind of having awareness of, of the, the unique situation that, you know, has, is affecting everyone in, in a lot of different ways and sometimes very serious ways. Absolutely. So they were kind of, you know, ran the spectrum. But I would lump all of those into kind of a stewardship category, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. even though they were definitely doing different things. So yeah. that makes a lot of sense Uh, updating the donor keeping them informed especially as as more virtual information is being sent to our donors and our communities and people who care about what nonprofits are doing right now so stepping outside of an email or a zoom call and actually getting a phone call or a um, piece of mail it might be different than what they are accustomed to through these last yeah. four months. so And mail is an interesting one too. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you feel personally, but I, I have seen my mail reduced drastically. And mm-hmm. I don't know if that's by choice or if that's just based on, you know, the difficulty of maybe working with a mail house right now, or just if you were sending out mail yourself, just maybe not being in the office. And, you know, I think handwritten notes, again, could be very powerful right now because there there's not a lot of competition, if that's the right word. Mm-hmm 
in, in people's mailboxes. And quick question <laughs> on phone numbers. I would mm. assume, I'm assuming only based on my experience with some of the work that I'm doing currently, getting someone on the phone at an office space could be a right. lot more difficult. But nonprofit has only an office number. Will they be right. less successful in outreach via phone right now? So we don't differentiate between whether someone picked up the phone or if they were left a voicemail. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we have found that voicemails are, are really pretty effective. And, okay. you know, thinking back to that, that AFP chapter where we were together last, I think Penelope Burke was one of the keynotes. Yes, she was. And she's, you know, she was always someone that we look to for phone call research. And she was, her, her research was, was one of the reasons we looked at this specifically because we kind of wanted to back her up. And, and one thing that I've heard her say is that, you know, no real differentiation between whether they pick up the phone and voicemails. Voicemails can be really effective. But my sense is, is that a majority of them were voicemails. They were being left and, you know, we don't recommend that people go out and try to, you know, find someone's phone number or try to hunt down a cell phone number. You know, the phone calls that were made were from donors that had, that had opted into that sure. channel that, they, you know, they already had a phone number for. My, my sense from virtual work, and this is, this is just pure gut feeling, is that, you know, there's voicemail forwarding. You know, there are ways that people can still check that, that voicemail even if they're not physically in the office, you know, certainly for, for our company, that's the case. We're all home. We can still check those numbers. So I, I wouldn't necessarily get discouraged by that because, you know, the technology today just sort of enables folks to be able to, to access that, those voicemails from, I think, pretty much anywhere they are, but definitely don't go out and try to, you know, search for someone's cell phone. Cause you know, they don't, they didn't opt into that for sure. There may, may be some privacy reasons there, but the, there may not be much upside, even if you can't get it. Good advice from Stephen Shattuck. So let's talk a more about maybe the first or second call. Mm -hmm. When you decide that you're going to start to make the time, to create the time to do this phone call stewardship campaign, when should this happen and who should be calling? And mm. if we can, maybe we should divide it the first call and the second call. Okay. So we looked at this, we looked at this pre-COVID. We, um, we did a little research into just phone calls for first time donors specifically. So we did this late 2019 and early 2020, because again, there had been a lot of, well, a lot of other research and a lot of kind of anecdotal, just, you know, things floating around the sector, you know, how, you know, how things kind of are where it's just like, yeah, phone, you know, phone calls work, but there wasn't really kind of that backbone data. Right. Um, so we looked at our customers, uh, the ones who were calling new donors versus the ones who weren't. And so what we found is that if you do call a new donor within the first 90 days of their first gift, not only is their retention rate higher on the second gift, but the second gift amount is higher, the dollar amount, and you get that second gift sooner versus organizations who didn't call new donors, but still were able to retain that first time donor. So the sweet spot seems to be in that first 90 days. Um, so kind of the sooner you can do it, the better. And if you can kind of combine that with maybe a nice thank you letter or a handwritten note, or maybe, you know, some kind of email welcome series, if you do something like that, you know, you can kind of fill that 90 days with several touch points you know, the phone call being just one. Right. And I think the content of that is, hey, Liz, you know, just noticed that you made a donation, noticed it was your first donation. Thanks so much. You know, we'd love to hear more about 
how you found us, you know, what the interest in the cause is. And, you know, I just want to make myself available to answer any questions that, that you might have about us. So it's kind of the dual purpose of getting to know the donor a little bit better. Mm -hmm. And again, a majority of these are going to be voicemails, but the people who pick up, if you can have, you know, strike up a little bit of a conversation, you're going to find out something about that donor, you know, why they're interested in, you know, um, the Ohio River, why they're interested in the art scene in Louisville or whatever your cause is. And you can kind of use that information in communications going forward. And I think that's why the retention rates are higher because you can start to really personalize what you do afterwards. But, but who should call? So going back to Penelope Burke's research, she seems to really um, hone in on, on the board member. Uh, there were some interesting data points where if a board member calls, um, their gift amount is also higher. So not only do you have higher retention rates and hopefully the gift comes in sooner, like what we found, but also that the dollar amount is higher. And, and I've, I've heard her speak, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of recalling this um, secondhand, but you know, if, if it's a board member, you know, they're a volunteer, maybe they have some name recognition in your community, mm -hmm. and that may kind of filter down into the donor's perception of the call. But also I think that a board member can kind of speak to maybe why they support the organization, why they serve as a board member and they're a volunteer, they're unpaid. And I, there's more similarities to the donor than perhaps an employee. Now that's not to say that the ED or the development director or any other volunteer is, is bad to call, but I think board members are, are good because it's, a, it's kind of a good way to delegate that work. Right. You know, you're maybe sitting here listening like, geez, I got to call every new donor. That's going to take me all day. But if you got a dozen board members and you can assign them a couple calls a week and it may help get them engaged, you know, it may help them get over fears of uh, fundraising or doing other things. Sure. There's so many benefits. I started the board members mostly because of the delegation thing. You know, there's so much work we can all be doing and, it's, and people like me are always, you know, saying you know, other things they should be doing. And it's right. kind of annoying, but you know, we on the board members, I say. Absolutely. <laughs> Plus the data says it's good. I tell fundraisers a lot and the folks that I see is to, you know, fundraising is a team sport yeah. and your team needs to include both staff and the volunteers because there's a role for everyone yeah. in fundraising. It also sounds like though, that perhaps nonprofit staff should be strategic in who they suggest a board member call. Yes. And so, so the art of fundraising and relationship building is also something that people should think of while they, you know, Stephen knows Liz. So maybe Stephen should call. For and, sure. And thank Liz for her $10 donation. And so I want to make sure that our audience understands that there is some, some thought that needs to go just I, it sounds yeah. like, Stephen, you would suggest that. And common sense, you know, going back to the high gift volume, you know, if you get 100 gifts a week, first of all, great, that's awesome, you know, 100 new gifts. And if you may not simply not have the, the woman or manpower to, to make it happen. And so then you might want to look at things like gift amount, maybe the channel, you know, uh, a direct donation versus maybe a peer-to-peer -peer donation where, you know, maybe they don't have a super strong connection. You know, those are kind of interesting things to look at. Geography is a really interesting one. You know, if, if you say, Liz, you're running a, a, a nonprofit in Louisville that is hyper local, you know, you serve a, a zip code 
in Kentucky and only a zip code. Well, if you get a new donation from South Dakota or Iowa and it's, you know, a hundred dollars or whatever is significant to you, you know, and you get a phone number, that may be an interesting person to call because maybe, maybe they used to live in Louisville or maybe they were, you know, touched by your services in a previous life. You know, that, those are interesting things to look at. So, you know, if, if you do have that high gift volume, you know, you might want to start adding in those those layers to decide, you know, what's best. You know, if you've got a $5 donation and a $500 donation, you can only call one person. I, I think you know which one is going to get called, <laughs> which is, you know, I feel kind of bad about because, you know, you never know what that $5 donor could could turn into most because new donors, every donor deserves yeah. to be thanked right so you know just you know don't you know beat yourself up too much if you can't get to all of them but you know what's important to you what what, what do you think kind of makes sense I, I think is worth considering rather than feeling bad about not being able to get to everybody before we wrap up, I want to make sure that people understand that the data that you've provided and that we can get a link to that data, yeah, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Nonprofits who worked their tails off to steward their donors and do outreach and thank them and just called to check up on them were, did you say 20%? Yeah, they had about a 20% increase in revenue versus the same period in 2019. Increase in just, revenue. Yeah, which considering what the last three months have been like versus last year, which is you know sort of normal. Sure. It's yeah. amazing. It is amazing. And so def I definitely want to put a point on this and make sure that people make the time for stewardship because it really yeah. begins and ends the cycle of fundraising. And we can see that through the data that Stephen has provided us today. So thank you so much for sharing that information sure. with us. <laughs> I do have a list of one common questions is what I, I'm starting to call them okay. that I like to ask. <laughs> and so I've told you about a couple of them, but I have one that I, I I've got up my sleeve. So it was sneaky one. <laughs> what is one thing that you love about working with nonprofits? Oh, geez. I mean, yeah, I, I think I speak for everyone at our company where no one, you know, no one leaves at 5 p.m. Although we're all at home, no one, no <laughs> one leaves their home office at 5 p.m. You know, feeling bad about how they just spent their day. I think hiring and recruiting is always pretty easy for us because people want to help organizations that that are doing good, and and that's just something I feel a lot of pride in. My my wife. Life has always been a, a, a nonprofit employee and always wanted to be. And I, I didn't necessarily aspire to that, but I sort of fell backwards into it accidentally, which always sort of annoyed her. Um, but it's 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 fun, you know. It's it's fun to feel good about, you know. It's fun to have that that pride that you're Absolutely. not just you know making widgets or and not to belittle belittle other industries, but you know you, you feel good about what you sure. do. Sure. So <laughs> okay. So what's one thing that you love less about working with nonprofits? Well, you know, I, I was thinking about this when, when you posed the question earlier, and I go back to that, sometimes that defeatist a attitude that we're not the right cause for the moment, you know, we're not, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be going out and fundraising, we don't want to take away from anyone else. And I think sometimes that can be a little bit pervasive in the sector, just that, that feeling of worth. And I think that everyone, if you're an organization in good standing, certainly, there are people who care about what you do, and you know, you shouldn't make the decision for them. Okay. So what is one thing a nonprofit can do tomorrow to Ooh. be better at stewarding the donor? Well, I, I would I would put some sort of mechanism in place internally where if you get a new donor, everyone in the organization knows about it. So there's some sort of alarm bell goes off. Celebrate it. 
I, I think a lot of times, and this may be a better answer to your previous question is, you know, we, I think we can do a better job celebrating wins. You know, hey, we got a new donor. So we convinced someone to give to us that wasn't giving to us yesterday. I think everyone in the organization should celebrate that. That may be the first step towards having a culture of stewardship is if you're not celebrating those wins, I think it can be a lot harder to do that outreach back to the donor if it's not something that internally people get excited about. So, you know, look at your software or whatever it is that takes donations and see if you can make some kind of alert happen or have a have a gong in your office when we finally get back to the office. That, that we celebrate those things <laughs> what is what's your favorite resource to share oh i like uh, uh sophie.org it's s-o-f-i-i.org it's it's not a super well-known website maybe here in north america i think it's more popular in in the uk but it's this awesome free library of just examples it's just people can plop in their thank you letter, their campaign, and it's just tons and tons of things that you can look at, maybe get inspiration from and see what worked. I don't want to say steal ideas, but maybe emulate some ideas. Sure. It's, it's, it's an awesome website. Everyone should bookmark it and uh, maybe look at it. Yeah, sophie.org, two eyes, S-O-F-I-I.org. When I get writer's block, I'm always looking for something to help me <laughs> get through that. Now, here's the, the one that I didn't tell you about. Okay. In this social <laughs> unrest that we have, mm-hmm. what is your organization doing to be more inclusive, to give space to Black, Indigenous, and people of color? So when that last weekend in May, I think it was the last Saturday in May when you know we had, it, it seemed they, that weekend that things were really firing up, I texted our, I texted Ross, our CEO, and Jay, our, our former CEO and, and co-founder, and said, I got an idea about how Boomerang can help. And uh, they immediately said yes to it without hesitation. And what we did is we put a call out to say, if you're a person of color working in the nonprofit sector, we want to give you a voice on our blog, on our webinar series. And, and we put a call out saying, you know, we'll publish any articles, we'll pay you, we want to hear from you. We want to know about your experience as a fundraiser. And it doesn't necessarily have to be about diversity and equity and inclusion topics, although we'd love to hear those those stories as well. But I feel like a lot of times conferences, the, that that perspective isn't heard. And, and we wanted to give those folks a platform. So if you go to boomerang.co slash DEI, you'll see all that. We put together a library of how white professionals can be allies to their, their colleagues of color in the sector. We built this huge resource library. And we've been leaning into to sponsoring more diverse conferences, conferences specifically for people of color in the sector. So we also pledged that we wouldn't sponsor organ- or conferences or events that, that don't have that diversity. And you can find all that stuff on that website, just bloomerang.co slash DEI. That, that open invitation is just going to persist forever because we want to hear from those folks and we want to compensate them for their time. Absolutely. So thanks for for asking about that because it's you know it's something we're we're proud of and and you know we fall short just like all kinds of brands do and when we're not perfect you know we we definitely want to be an ally as well. You're part of the conversation and I think yeah. that's a good step to be a part of. So and that wraps up our common questions that I have in our <laughs> interviews. Thank you again for being with us today on Small Shop Fundraising. If people have more questions for you, Stephen, could they reach out to you via email or LinkedIn? Yeah, would, okay. all of it. 
I'm pretty easy to find. You know, I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. Send me a connection. I'd love to hear from you. Send me an email. It's just steven.shattuck at bloomerang.ceo. If you Google Bloomerang Steven, you'll you'll find me. I'm, I'm pretty easy to find. I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear from you. <laughs> Super. I'll make sure to put that in the show notes as well. This has been Small Shop Fundraising. Thanks for listening.